Morning. Morning. I'm always the furthest away that I possibly could be <laughs> every time it comes to speak. Okay. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Okay, don't answer it because we could be here all day. Don't tell me. You can tell us later if you want, but think of it in your head. Has anything ever happened in your life that has completely changed you? Okay? Beside those people who know and love Jesus. Think about other things as well. Has anything ever happened that has made you do something completely differently or made you look at life completely differently? Okay? Keep that in your head because this story, kids, as well, is one of the most amazing stories you will ever hear. So make sure you listen. So... This story is found in the book of Acts, chapter 9. And it starts off with this guy called Saul. Okay? Now, Saul knew loads about God's word. Okay? He was a Pharisee. He was really, really religious. He followed everything to the letter. And he was so, so adamant that he was doing the right thing that when the disciples came along and said that Jesus was the Son of God... This, this guy called Saul was furious because he didn't believe it. And he thought that they were going against what he knew God's word said. He was so furious that he thought, right, I'm going to start to lock all of these people up who are saying that they are Christians and that they belong to the way. So he was a really, really angry man. He was furious. He did not like the disciples. He didn't like the, what they were saying, and he wanted to stop them. So he asked the high priest for letters so that he could have these letters and he could go into the other surrounding villages and places and go to Damascus, and that if he found anybody who belonged to the way, then he had a letter there that he could bind them up and he could bring them back to Jerusalem. He was so zealous for God, or he thought he was. He thought he was doing the right thing. So this day, he was traveling, got his letters, had permission to do that, got his letters, was on his way to Damascus. He was on the road. And all of a sudden, bang, a light shone down around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground, absolutely fell to the ground. And the people who were traveling with him could hear this voice, but they couldn't see anything. And Saul was on his knees, flat down, and a voice came. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What must he have thought? I have no idea. I can't even imagine what he must have thought at that moment. And Paul answers this voice back and he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice comes back and says, I am Jesus. I am the one you are persecuting. Talk about a wake-up call. Don't think there's a, a greater one that I know of than that. And when Paul has heard this voice, and the voice tells him to get up and go into Damascus, and when you get there, you'll be told what to do, the light disappears, and Paul stands up, and he opens his eyes, and he's blind. He can't see anything. Put your hands over your eyes, kids, grown-ups. Welcome to join in. He can't see anything. His eyes are open. Though. It's not like putting your hands over your eyes. His eyes are open and he can't see anything. And the people who he's with have to lead him into Damascus. And he's blind for three days 
is, he can't see a thing, and he doesn't eat, and he doesn't drink. And I'm not surprised, because he's probably wondering, what on earth is going on? He was there with the mission. He was so angry, he thought he was doing the right thing. Bang, Jesus meets him. Why are you persecuting me? Then he's blind for three days, and now he's in Damascus, not being able to do what he thought, and just waiting. The Bible says he's praying. Because the next man you need to know is a man named Ananias. Now, Ananias was a disciple who loved Jesus, and he lived in Damascus. And God speaks to this man, and I love the conversation that he has with him. He speaks to him, and he says, Ananias, you need to get up, and you need to go to a street that's called Straight Street. You need to go there, because there there's a man named Saul who is praying. And this man, Saul, is praying, and in a vision he's seeing somebody come and lay their hands on him and give him his sight back. That's going to be you, Ananias. You need to go. Ananias' response, he goes, uh, I've heard about this man. Lord, I, I have heard about him. We know all about what he's done. He's been locking people up who say they love you. You want me to go to him? I think I would have been exactly in the same boat going, are you crazy? You are sending me to the man who is locking people like me up. And my, the response that God gives is incredible because he says to Ananias, basically, yes, do as you were told. Go because he is my chosen instrument. My chosen one. Ananias has no response to be able to say to that, when God says something, you do it. And Ananias gets up and he goes to the house and he finds Saul there and he puts his hands on him and something, the Bible says, something like scales fell from his eyes and Saul could see. And at that moment, Saul goes out and he's baptised and he believes in Jesus. He believes what's being said. This man who was so angry at the beginning is completely and utterly changed. Because he now knows that this Jesus who the people were talking about, he is God's son. He is the Lord. And he's filled with this incredible, overwhelming sense, as you are when you're a Christian, to go and tell people. And that's exactly what he goes out to do. He gets so excited, he goes out and he starts to tell everybody, Jesus is the Christ, he is the Lord. And he goes out and he's proclaiming the message of the gospel. What he was going there to fight against, he goes there to tell. It's incredible, just along one road. His life completely changed from a God-hater to somebody who loves God. A complete change in the opposite direction. And it's absolutely amazing. So, as always, we always think about this, and I'm just going to sum it up really quickly, is this. Why is that story in the Bible? We always say, kids, don't we? Whenever we read a story, you can't just read. You have to ask, why? Why is it there? Why has God put this story in the Bible? What is it that he wants us to learn from it? And one of the things I really want to think you to learn is this, that he put this story there for you and for me, personally. And the reason he put us there is because it shows Three main things. And it's a word that we've visited a lot, kids. The first one is that. That God is sovereign. He is in control. It is his perfect timing. It is his 
plan. Nothing happens without him knowing. He is sovereign in everything that he does. It's also this. That God chooses people. Nobody ever, anybody, would have picked Saul. Nobody would have. And he even says that himself. He said he was the worst of sinners. The worst of the worst. He hated God. He persecuted Christians. He watched as Stephen was stoned to death and he stood by. He absolutely hated God. But God chose him. I wouldn't have. I'll be honest. Everything you know about this man, you would not have picked him. But this story is there to show you that those people who all of a sudden, who fear and they might lose heart, who fear that God, God can't save them, who fear they have gone too far away, who fear that their loved ones can't be saved, this story is there for you. That's why it's there. That there is nobody, nobody who is too far away for Jesus to call them. And it's our job to tell them his job to save them that is not our job our job is to proclaim the message because God chooses people and that's incredible that should be the most reassuring thing in the world because we can't save anybody hallelujah that does not depend on me it's his work and that he has the ultimate patience he has the ultimate patience with us you see one of the things that I read, and I'm going to read it out because it, it was just incredible when I thought about it. God had a time for choosing Saul, okay, who would later change his name to Paul, and we're going to come on to that later. The time for choosing him was before he was born. The time for calling him was on the Damascus Road. And that's the same with everybody's story. God's time for choosing you was before you were born. But his time that he called you was different. And you'll all know the time when Jesus spoke in your life and you gave your life to him. But he chose you before the creation of the world. And that's absolutely mind-blowing. Which means that all of the things that happened in between you being born to when you came to know Jesus were part of God's plan. All of the things that Paul and Saul did... They were all part. God knew all of those things were going to happen and they're in this story to show us exactly that, that God chooses people. He is sovereign and Saul was his chosen instrument. And if that does not set your heart alight this morning, I don't know what is. I just look and I read this story and I was like, thank you, Jesus, for putting this story in for me. For the times I doubt that you can't save me. I've gone too far. You can't do that. You'll never change that person. That person I've been praying for. And God goes, it's not your timing. It's mine. And I choose people. And I want you to take courage from that this morning, kids, that when you are speaking to your friends, when you are telling them about Jesus, keep going. But don't worry because it's not your job to save them. You go and tell them because God chooses the instruments and he has got the ultimate patience. Thank you. And we'll do more out the back. Good morning, everyone. Um, when Andrew asked me to preach a sermon uh, a few months ago, 
Um, he did the worst thing he could possibly say, and he said, you can speak on anything. And if you ask me or if you ask Johnny to speak in next week, um, that's so much more difficult than speaking on a specific passage. But there is also great blessing in that, because uh, I found that like in the last few months, God had been challenging me on my joy in him, and just to help that joy to grow deeper. And then that being kind of in the background, and then Kate for Christmas bought me this, this book, which is now soaking wet, thanks to the rain, um, Desiring God by John Piper. Um, and God, through those few things, has really kind of called me to, to, to preach on this sermon, which I've called The Pursuit of Godly Joy. Um, this has been a real inspiration to me, so, you know, if you feel God's calling it, have a read of it. It's uh, really helped me. So I'm just going to pray before we start the sermon. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that we can, uh, we can be gathered here together, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that I can sing, It is well with my soul, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you've achieved that for me. And I pray, Lord, that we will just, we will just see you, Lord, today. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who doesn't know what it is to call you, Lord, to better say, It is well with my soul, Lord. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would convict them to see Christ. I pray those things in your name. Amen. In John chapter 4, um, we have the account of the Samaritan woman at the well with Jesus. And in verse 13, it tells us that the woman um, is trying to drink from that well. And Jesus says to her that if she drinks from the well, it would satisfy her for a time. But then very soon, she'll become thirsty again. And this, the water that Jesus is referring to here isn't just physical water. He starts to say, I have water that will never run dry. That will always satisfy. And Jesus is referring to the water that he has, eternal life, freedom from sin. Now, this woman would make a journey daily to the well because um, she needed water to survive. In the same way that we all as human beings have things that we need, be it food, water, comfort, friendship. Humans need things. And we'll go to wherever we think we can best find it to satisfy us. But be it a nice meal, which you're finishing is over, be it that great fulfilling job where you get redundant from or you have to retire, all things will come to an end. But Jesus tells us that he's a living fountain that never runs dry. So for us today to have true satisfaction in life, to have joy full, we need to turn to Jesus as the source. So through this sermon, my idea is to basically take us to the source of this joy, explore how we may draw from this deep well, and then why, having seen how amazing it is, that we should bring others to share in this discovery. The first thing I want to look at is, what does God delight in? The Bible teaches us that before the foundation of the world, there was God. And it tells us that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is what we refer to as the Trinity. And in the Trinity, there is completeness. The Bible also tells us that God doesn't need anything. All things were created through God and for God, and that there is no one greater than him. In John 17, it shows us that there's completeness in the relationship of God in the Trinity. And because of this completeness and the fact that God provides all and is all, it makes it clear that God is the source of all things. He tells the woman in John chapter 4 that he is the living fountain. He is the source. So I've identified that God is the source of all things. 
The next question I've thought then from there is, what does God delight in, as I said previously? And I've gone through, had a little look at Scripture, and there's some examples here that things that God says are pleasing to him. He says that he finds a pleasure in the Son that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He finds great delight in the salvation of his people. God loves that when his name is proclaimed amongst the world. He enjoys praises from his people, as we've done this morning. He loves it when people obey, who obey his words and commands. He encourages us to pray to God and find our strength in him. And he tells us about the beauty and love he has for his creation. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list of all the things which are good and holy in God's sight. And it's just important to understand that what God finds pleasing to him. But what I would like to look at now is specifically the joy that God, our creator, who is above all things in earth, finds in his people. So what I'd like you to do, if you've got a Bible, could you turn to Zephaniah chapter 3? Now, it's quite a hard one to find. I've memorized the page number. I've found it that many times in my Bible now. So chapter 3 of Zephaniah, I'm going to read from 14 to 17. It's, my title is titled, Joy in God's Faithfulness. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let your hands, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And it's that last part of verse 17 which, which really struck me. And I've, I've definitely read this before, but I haven't comprehended what this is actually saying to me. It's telling us that the Lord God, who is above all things, who is the creator, rejoices over us so much as if he's singing in us. And that just, I think, humbled is an understatement. The fact that God could look upon his created beings who are sinful against him, and he could delight in us so much so. And the reason that God can delight in us is because he has paid the price for our sins through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this enables him to now have a relationship with us. And this brings such delight and pleasure to God. It says in heaven that when a sinner is redeemed, that heaven rejoices, that the angels sing. This is how much love God has for us. When we look to the world, we look for examples of things that are loving. And I think there's no greater um, sacrificial love than a mother who loves a child, who's willing to, to bear the child for nine months and to go through the painful delivery of that child. But she does it because her love for the child is so much greater than the pain. How deep then is God's love for us that he would send his only son, his beloved son, 
to die for us. I read a quote from a Spurgeon that really put this verse in 17 into perspective for me. I'll read it now. If God sings, shall we not sing? He did not sing when he made the world. No, he looked upon it and simply said it was good. What must be the joy which recompenses Gethsemane and Calvary? Here we are among Atlantic waves. The Lord receives an ascension to the affinity of his joy in the thought of his redeemed people. And I just can't get over that. The fact that God can look upon creation and say it's very good, yet he can look upon me and say that he delights in me. And I just, it's an amazing, amazing thought. We can't deny God's love for his people. It's greater than anything else in creation. And he's not an impersonal God. He would send his own son to die for us. And when a sinner repented, when I repented, God was pleased. He would sing over me in heaven. So I have to ask, if you don't know that love, please take advantage of the great sacrifice Jesus gave so that you could. And if you do like me, please just think about it. It's amazing. I don't normally ever sound emotional or get emotional, but just this morning, that is just an amazing thought. And there's nothing greater than God's love. And thinking about myself and being a sinner, the next question that popped in my head was, why does God find joy in us? That has to be the next question. And there almost appears a little paradox with God. Because as I said with those verses earlier, God lacks nothing. There's no one greater than him. And all things are for his purpose. So that means there's nothing outside of God that can add to God or take away from him. So that means that God's happiness isn't dependent on us or anything else. However, scripture does give us those examples of things that were pleasing to God, as I said earlier. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at those and think of why God finds pleasure in them. Firstly, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us in John 17 that Jesus glorifies the Father through his sacrifice and being obedient to him. And that God then exalts the Son to be the highest that there is, that uh, every name people would bow at him. Secondly, saving his people. God finds pleasure in this because it shows his mercy, his power to forgive, and his justice. When we proclaim God as the true God amongst the world, it glorifies God because it shows his worth and the fact there is no one else like him. Today, the praises from his people, as we'll sing in there, it declares his power, his love, his majesty, his sovereignty. Obeying his words and commands. When we obey God's words, what it's showing is that there's no higher authority in, in the world and that we're relying on his strength. And similarly, when we pray to God, it brings praise to him because it shows that we're not relying on our own strength, but rather we're asking God to provide us the strength and this gives us what we need to get through each day and also gives God the glory for being the all-powerful one. And lastly, his creation, which shows his creativity, his power, and his imagination. If you look back at all those examples there, there's one common thing. is that they all glorify God as the one true God. 
For there is no greater thing in heaven or earth than God. Therefore, the highest pleasure that we as humans or God can have in anything is in his glory. The Westminster um, Catechism asks one of the greatest questions you could ever ask. What is the chief end of man? Basically, what is man's purpose? And the answer is glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, this is where the great mystery of where mankind comes into all this. For God finds greater joy in mankind than anything else in creation. As we saw in Zephaniah, he sings over his created beings. And the reason is, in us as humans meets the splendor of his creation, people he's created in his own image, with the sovereignty and love of his salvation for his son, Jesus Christ. And in us is intertwined both of those things at the same time. Now, God loves us deeply. And he wants us to have the same highest joy and fulfillment. And what that is, is his glory. As it said in the Westminster Catechism, glorify God and enjoy him forever. The glorifying and enjoying are interlinked. When we enjoy who God is, we glorify him. And we do this through the ways that I mentioned. Praising God for the things he's done in your life, for the things he, who he is, his characteristics. Obeying his word, showing that it's greater than any other thing. Proclaiming his name, marveling at his creation. All these things are ways that God's able to bring us mere humans into his glory by praising him. And in that, we'll also feel the joy that he has in his own glory. Next, in all things in life, in the Bible, we'll have to look to Jesus as our greatest example. And Jesus is also our greatest example in the pursuit of godly joy. If we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, it gives us an insight into this. Or it reads, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with the endurance of race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. I just want to focus on a few words from that little passage there. Firstly, the phrase, despising the shame. The cross was the worst punishment possible, not only in terms of the pain it would bring, but the fact it was so painful meant it was used for the worst crimes and the worst criminals. So to be seen on a cross was a sign of humiliation, of shame. It even says in Deuteronomy that anyone who's hung on a tree is accursed by God. Jesus died for his people in the most humble and painful situation possible. Next, the verse that reads, endured the cross. Jesus willingly came to the earth and pursued the cross, fully aware of what was to happen. Jesus even told his disciples before it took place that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down for myself. Jesus' road to Calvary was intentional. And the reason why Jesus was willing to humble himself as a man 
to die a painful and humiliating death is revealed to us when it says, the joy set before him. The reason Jesus did this was the joy set before him. And the, the joy that he had was glory in heaven. Because of God, Jesus' faithfulness in bringing many sons to glory, God the Father exalts Jesus as above all things and gives him the right to be the ruler over all things. Certainly by being obedient to God the Father, he gives praise and glory to the unity of the Trinity and the equality of the Godhead. Thirdly, the salvation of sinners. There was no other way people could enter into heaven but by Jesus' sacrifice. And through his sacrifice, Jesus is able to bring these sinners into eternal life. And his love isn't expounded so much that it goes beyond just saving us. He also gives his people the right to share in the glory that he has earned for eternity. Given that Jesus is our greatest example in all things, we too must fix our eyes on Jesus and how to know the fullness of happiness and pleasure in God. From Jesus' life and example, the joy we pursue should be pleasing to God our Father, based on a desire to be with him in heaven forever. Bringing sinners to see Jesus as the Christ and the only way to salvation. And this joy, as shown by Christ, will include suffering to show the worth of God as greater than all things. And we must turn to Jesus through these examples and how we live out our lives. And if we feel like we're lacking in our joy, just feel like we haven't got it, the answer is simple, to turn to Jesus. Read in scripture of the love he had for his people, the faithfulness he had to God. Now this next point, I feel like I couldn't not mention it, but it also could be like 10 sermons in itself. So it is, I promise it is short. Um, the idea of joy and suffering um, and I think we'll have to look at that because the context of the joy that Jesus had was dying on the cross for us. And I think the lessons that can be learned from suffering are, are so many. Um, so we're just going to consider one element of it, really. I'm just going to read three verses quickly. You don't have to turn them about suffering and joy. Jesus tells us in Luke 9, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. In Romans 8, Paul says, to be joint heirs of Christ if we indeed suffer with him. And lastly, in 1 Peter, Peter commands us to partake of Christ's sufferings so that when his glory is revealed, we may be glad with exceeding joy. Suffering in the Bible is described as being a blessing. It's described as being a point of joy. Um, and it's a way of showing obedience to God in their spreading spreading his gospel. And some of the reasons God has suffering in our lives is to build reliance on him, um, to provide, for God to give opportunity for us to pray to him so that he can provide us strength so he's glorified, to show a faithful witness that our faith in Christ is genuine and that the worth of God is greater than all things that we may suffer loss for. Paul tells us that he, he like lost all things for the cross. And having looked back on all the things he lost, he saw them as rubbish, as worthless. And that was only because of the great worth of Christ. And in suffering, I think when you look back on a painful time, you'll realize that 
you've experienced the closest to God that you, you don't experience in the good times. And I think that's because there's a joy that can only come through suffering. And that if we don't ever suffer, we actually are limiting the joy that we can have in him. But what I would command you, that if you are struggling, turn to Jesus, Jesus who has suffered all things, and ask him to strengthen you. But secondly, ask him that, he, that you would know his will for this time in your life. For the purpose of suffering is that we could be made more like him. I remember reading ages ago a quote, I think it was from Calvin, and it was kind of looking at why do we as Christians often struggle with the same things? Why do we often suffer always in a certain area in our lives? And one of the reasons could be that Jesus is trying to challenge us in a certain area and we're not obtaining all of the blessings and benefits that we're intended to. So Jesus has to come back and back again to that same issue until his purposes are fulfilled. So the thing to encourage you would be to pray to God to give you the insight to know why he's challenging on this thing and that Jesus would make you more like him. And lastly, from all of this, I just want to look at the idea of sharing our joy. If we go back to John 4 with the woman at the well, when the woman realizes that Jesus is Christ, what's the first thing she does? She goes straight back to her city. And she goes around telling them about the man who told everything about her that's ever happened. And what the, what the people do is they, they listen to her and they go and listen to Jesus. But the important thing it tells you in the text is, I said, that they believed the witness of the woman about what she said, but they only believed on Jesus and were saved on hearing his words. As Laura was saying there, we're not called to save, but we are called to make people aware of the one who can save. And in this life, there is no greater happiness or experience when someone you know is saved. Because you know they've been freed from condemnation and sin. And they're going to spend eternity in heaven with God. And when you've spread the gospel and been faithful to God, you've followed Jesus' commands in the Great Commission. You've proclaimed Jesus as Lord as greater than any other thing. And this all gives glory to God for his mercy, his love, and his salvation. I was recently talking to someone... Um, and he was telling me about a time where he was reading God's word to a colleague at work. And as he was reading the words to the colleague, he just became overwhelmed by the gospel and the majesty of what he was saying. And it just kind of hit me new, the freshness of it. And that's because there's power in God's word through his Holy Spirit. And we can see this in what the woman said. She spoke the words, but it was when they heard it through Jesus Christ that these people were saved. And I think there's also blessing in fellowship with other believers. In 1 John, John tells us that the reason he wrote his letters was so that the church's joy may be full. Through discipling one another, um, it's a way of pleasing God and strengthening our own faith. And one of the greatest examples of discipling people has to be the Apostle Paul. In Philippians, which is a book of great joy, um, at the beginning, Paul praises God for the church's faith. And this is in the context of Paul writing from prison. He praises them for the faith and love they have in Jesus. And he says, given all that he'd had, 
that the Philippians' faith was a comfort to him and it was helping him to get through the struggles that he had. And Paul goes the next level. He then says of, he doesn't know whether if he should return to Christ to be in heaven, because that's the greatest thing, or to continue on earth to be with the Philippians church, the Philippian church. And what he says is he was happy to continue on earth so that he could increase the Philippians' joy and relationship with God. And this is because we can have joy in other people's joy in Christ. And through this, we can increase our reward in heaven. The motivation for spreading the gospel, for building up one another, it has to be out of love. We'll have to turn on Christ's example, who was obedient to the point of death on the cross. However, God does promise there is a great reward in heaven that can be had. Now, this might have been, I don't know how long the sermon has been at all. Um, it might have been short, it might have been long. I have no idea. Um, I've never timed myself doing it. Um, so I'm just going to conclude it there. All I want for you to get from this morning are these three things. God is the source of joy in all things. Our God loves us so much, and he wants us to have the fullest life and joy impossible, and it can only be found in him. And lastly, sharing our faith with others glorifies God, and it will increase our joy by seeing their joy in God. My prayer is, if you've never known what I'm talking about, that you would pray to God to open your heart. As Laura was saying in that talk, there's a time before I was saved, and there's a time when I was saved. And that time after, I experienced the full joy that was in Christ. And if you know Jesus, I pray that you just think about what Jesus has done for you in your lives. Find joy in what God has done. He's freed us from the power of sin and death. Our chains are, are being made loose. Praise God for what he's done. And I pray that you would fix your eyes on Jesus' example and do all things that are pleasing unto God. I'm just going to pray now and close. Lord Jesus, I cannot comprehend your love, but I claim it as my own. I thank you, Lord God, for the victory you paid for me on, on the cross, Lord. The fact that I can be joined with you in heaven forever, Lord. I pray, Lord, that I would take delight in praising you and glorifying you, for there is no greater thing. And I pray, Lord God, that I wouldn't just keep this joy to myself, Lord, but I would share the discovery that is in your word, Lord. And I pray, Lord, if anyone doesn't know you, Lord, to cry out to you, Lord, to know this joy. I pray all these things to your glory forever and ever. Amen.